Welcome to part two of the Water Cycles podcast. In part one, we heard from Andrew Stoker and Jacob Amon, two Evolver organizers who do water testing and cleanup in New Mexico and California. They gave a great introduction to the hydrologic cycle, describing how water travels through streams into groundwater and the atmosphere. We've just been joined by Casey Greenlean, a health researcher, chef, and artist. Hi, Casey. Greetings. Aloha. Hey, Casey. Nice to meet you. Yeah, so much to share. I took a little bit of notes while you guys were talking, but a few points that I'd love to try to reiterate here is, yeah, basically uh, that water is living. Water, to a large degree, is consciousness, and our sacred relationship to it should be thus so that it is structured in a way that it's catered to our own well-being more so than food is because we are water beings and we live on a water planet and so a lot of us look at the food issue and look at soil issues but really water I think holds a predominance that's going to play a key role in the major fluctuations of the next 10-20 years and so water sovereignty is a certain issue, water purity is a certain issue. But yeah, as, as things keep going on, it's going to be more and more apparent how this thing is so sacred to us, which is like Starhawk's book, The Fifth Sacred Thing. So ultimately, water has a living essence to it, and that's something that should be associated between what is called municipal liquid, which has really very little connection to water, and towards what is coming out of the ground that people have been drinking for over 2,000, 5,000 you know, years. And the obviously quality of water, but basically source of water. And so there's definitely some structural and scientific differences between obviously contaminated water with certain things that it's contaminated with and how we cleanse those waters and with chlorine and fluoride but also how their structure is and their crystalline structure and water is a, is a liquid crystal and crystals hold so much importance to us even in terms of technology and memory and so water has a memory as well and so something about making water back to a living water system is this idea that it can remember its own inherent vortexual spiral nature that it had in nature which levitates it up out of the ground as part of a, a levity principle and so even though it's changed its course in so many ways that there's a process through purifying it and through structuring it and remineralizing it because it also picks up a lot of minerals in the ground which can be uh, beneficial or not and re-imprinting it and so there's something that has to do with with the structure of water what Andrew calls a uh, the it's the micro hydroxyls and hydroxines and how they're configured in hexagonal patterns which is like the snowflakes and snow but also Emoto's work who a couple years back when we did the Evolver Spore with water before Emoto was a big part of that and he has a lot of very fascinating scientific studies as to that living quality of water and its relationship which may be subtle science but in a sense there's definitely very important things that happen to the water when we debase it, when it has a certain uh, vibration to it or whatever, and there's certain things that we can do to restructure that. Something that 
I'll mention real quickly is egg technology and Schauberger's study, who is the water wizard who wrote five different books on water that are well worth reading, translated by Callum Coates. And basically, one of his main ultimate things was uh, the ceramic egg, which creates a mini hydrological cycle to re-imprint, to reinvigorate water to its basic nature or essence, and kind of like cleansing a crystal and getting a crystal back. Same thing with um, Patrick Flanagan's work with water, where he would actually put crystalline structures into water, and he worked with different waters from the Hunza region all throughout the world and noted the different crystalline structures of them and even just imprinting water by putting aquamarine or quartz crystal in it and leaving it overnight and how it would literally change the, the dynamic of the water. There's certainly a lot of things worth mentioning in that and especially when you're talking about solutions and empowering us, it's how do we avoid contaminated water and how do we get back into the conversation of where our water comes from and how our re reflection with that is but having something like a water egg and understanding that we don't just need to purify our water but that we can actually make it better than just purified water is super important. The other thing I'll mention is down in Peru and other indigenous cultures which is what Jacob talked about and the global progress of water and really educating yourself like what you talked about with how water is in so many different regions is the purification of water and something that I worked on in Peru was uh, water filtration systems using ceramic clay and sawdust which is very local, very mean, like has a means and in other regions where they would use tufa rock but that water purity for these regions uh, is super important not only the scarcity of water but how do people take dirty brown water and actually make it drinkable and there's really sincere, easy-based solutions, and there's a lot of other innovative TED Talks and stuff like that on how that's, that's moving forward, but definitely looking at the resources that we have, and again going back to the, uh, the idea of how certain elite people and the whole ideology behind bottled water, which should be addressed for sure because of what, I mean, plastic BPA does in water-soluble things with um, excitoestrogens or... Um, xenoestrogens and the whole plastic and water thing. There's definitely a lot that fascinates me and intrigues me and something else last on my notes is water technology and this talk about water and even the petroleum industry which is contaminating a, a large portion of this water is the, the understanding and adherence that uh, water is also used in a lot of new technological movements which have existed for many years but finally coming out of suppression on many levels and so water fuel technology, cars running on water, um, hydrolysis for plasma torches, for water torches and HHO systems and all sorts of other applications that water has and so it's really interesting how it all ties together basically. <laughs> that's about all I have to say. No, that's great. Thank you. Yeah, I think one thing I, you made me think of is uh, how empowering it is to be a part of your own water purification process, whether it's using the clay or um, pottery and wood sawdust or whatnot, or being a part of that, versus Brita filters originally had, I think, an herbicide, right, or a pesticide that they were using, and then they uh, public outrage got them to change that. But, Brita um, filters are owned by Clorox Bleach Company. Yeah. Yeah, I don't use them. 
But um, <laughs> I yeah, it's totally it's a very personal thing. We don't have fluoridated water in Santa Cruz County here, and actually, Martinelli's the uh, the apple uh, juice company was very adamant about not fluoridating water because there were some pushes because there's been a lot of people in the dentistry and public health groups and governance in the last 60 years who felt that that was the best way, especially in poorer um, communities, to prevent tooth decay and cavities. And But it's again, it's like this top-down type of uh, management approach that has these health effects with people and whereas, you know, getting people to be more a part of their own water purification process on a community or family level is, uh, is really a good thing to encourage, yeah. So that was, that was awesome. Thank you. Along with that line, I think something that a lot of people don't really consider is that even though the maleffects of chlorine and fluoride and, and all the other tem- chemicals involved in that, is something that fascinates me is that most water that came out of sink, if it wasn't sterilized to the degree that it is, we would just have giant mold and bacteria factions happening in our <laughs> system all over. And that's that's insane. And so it goes also back to this thing that we take for granted, which, which is our relationship to water in the last 50 years, which is we turn on the spigot outside or out front, and voila, we have water. And so it detaches us, just like from buying packaged meat detaches us from the animal kill. It detaches us from actually what our source is and the, the acknowledgement of what's in it, and we just trust it's safe. And that's a very scary thing that you know the majority of people are doing, let alone with chlorine and fluoride. But you've heard the statistics of like in Denver where they recycle the water at least six times at their water processing plant. And so it has all forms of steroids, pharmaceuticals. The list goes on and on about the really gnarly contaminants in it. So besides being sterilized, you're also getting a healthy dose of pharmaceutical drugs and other things inside the water that don't break down that are included in those total dissolved solids. And so I think, yeah, really getting back to where things come from is part of that uh, education or engagement process where we can acknowledge what we're getting and then from there if we're not willing to go get spring water which is basically from all of my teachers the number one thing that we can do but you're not going to convince a lot of people who don't have the time or energy to go get spring water and they're getting rarer and rarer for sure but it's a tricky situation where the luxury and the commodity of water and the sustainability of water is becoming an issue and even with farming here in New Mexico I never know when they might shut the municipal water off for whatever reason that uh, that FEMA or someone might come up with. So it's better to have uh, gallon cistern tanks, you know, like a 200-gallon at least uh, cistern tank outside for your rainwater because rain's going to happen. And so even that, if you were gardening and something happened to your water supply, it's just best to be efficient, A, to have at least 5 to 1 drinking gallon water on hand but also for farming or agricultural for your house or your household where we can make those own movements ourselves is to have a little bit of rain catchment to save on money and water, but also just in case something happens. I mean, we can always be prepared. I have one question. I don't know if any of you know the answer to this, but I've been wondering. I really feel 
the planetary water body. I feel very connected to that. And I don't know if that's just a woman thing in general, <laughs> but it seems that all of the things that we're putting into the atmosphere, which is water to some extent, with cars and whatever like gets put into the air any kind of like our household chemicals or those sorts of things and what ends up in the ocean and in the groundwater and in streams and this kind of thing that seems to me to be all interconnected and that our bodies by breathing air and fog and the moisture in the air and by drinking water and eating food that draws up different materials from the soil and absorbs water. It seems that we, at some point, on some level, take all of that we're putting into the water and, and chemically restructuring, restructuring to potentially be toxic into our bodies, into, like you see this with the changing chemistry of the whole ocean, for example, becoming more acidic. I'm curious if any of you have a perspective on that really big picture of how our bodies process um, everything from radioactive materials getting into these cycles to the BPAs to all these sorts of things. Is that inevitable that no matter what local protective and restorative processes that are important to do across the board, it seems inevitably to, to me that humans and all the other species here would be absorbing and have as long as we're out of balance with chemistry and still learning how or relearning how to be in integrity, it seems to me that all, all of life would be absorbing these chemical cycles at some point. Is that true? Is it is that more locally interconnected than I'm thinking? Do you mean like how these contaminants uh, biomagnify? Like you eat uh, a tuna that ate you know, a lot of other smaller... That's one example. That's also, for example, Daniel Pinchbeck, who's one of the co-founders of Evolver, I think talks about encountering the Kogi in, I think it's Colombia. Mm -hmm. And that there are people who live high in the mountains and they're like, wait, 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 wait a minute. Something's wrong. We're way remote in the middle of nowhere and we're feeling something is different. Um, so I mean on like big scales of, yeah, the food chain and how that's all connected, but also atmospheric currents and big flows of water, chemicals being absorbed into bodies of water and that being in the whole hydro hydrological. Is that the phrase you used for the cycle? Yeah. yeah. Well, there's something to be said about that that's uh, worth mentioning, which is an interview with... Danny Vitalis that I just listened to and Andrew just listened to. And it's a concept which is a very fascinating thought, which is that human beings are bottom feeders and that we actually live in an ocean of air and that we are on the surface of that ocean of air. And if you look at water as in the ocean and you understand how certain levels of that water is filtrated or what is existing at the, the bottom level, Air is water vapor, and so we live in an ocean of water vapor. And so contaminants definitely filter out through the different strata of atmospheres that we have. And these atmospheres definitely have a huge part in the, in the water hydrological cycle and the ground-earth-water cycle. And so those contaminants in terms of what we're doing to the atmosphere are definitely playing into 
that and what you mentioned about radioactive isotopes as being one of those things is with upper atmospheric testing, which Danny Vitalis also talks about, we've been in a silent nuclear war for the last 30 years in the upper atmosphere besides what happened with Fukushima. And so in these contaminants and all life absorbing these chemicals, there's a part of truth to that in the sense that what is airborne is waterborne and kind of the coinciding of that. But I do believe that there's ways which we can live in integrity that allow us to continue to thrive on this planet. And such ways might be like eating bentonite or zeolite clays to block out or absorb radiation, which is going to be in our food and our water and our air sources, so to speak. But yeah, it's hard for an overall blanket of of an iodine and kelp powder, so eating kelp, but you know, knowing our sources of, of sea vegetables and things like that. It's tricky and ultimately outside of the atmosphere and the water issue, I think that there's just going to be in regards to how we can, there's going to be certain entities and, and animals that are able to thrive in these various conditions and other people that are doing certain protocols and structures to be acknowledging how sh things are changing and other uh, which is generally like what Jacob said about the commercially industrial sort of abused societies that have been taken advantage of is that it's going to really impair and damage those cultures and it's hard to find a solution for everybody or whatever that, that realm takes or whatever. But there are things that I think we can do or that certain people can do to empower them to not be so affected. But yeah, it is affecting the entire planet and will continue to do so more and more and more and more. Well, one thing I... You know, there's different opinions about the level of radiological contamination in the oceans and where we're at with that relative to all the nuclear weapons testing that was done from the late 40s through, I don't know when they stopped doing that in the oceans as much, but I mean the amount of nuclear weapons testing has of course greatly decreased since treaties in the 1990s and in the 1980s, but most of the radiological contamination in the oceans is from nuclear weapons testing in Bikini Atoll and all those atolls down there. And you know the US, what they, we've exploded over a thousand or, or two thousand? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, yeah. that's impacted the atmosphere, that's impacted, I mean, that's partially why we have such pretty sunsets because <laughs> of some of those particulates. <laughs> I've been a big fan of James Lovelock for, I don't know, probably since early in college, you know, like 2004, 2005, and I've read most of his books, and he's been a proponent for uh, nuclear power since, well, I mean, he was, he's been involved in nuclear power early, or nuclear research like that in the uh, 40s and 50s, but being the kind of co-originator of Gaia theory and being a, the inventor of the electron uh, what uh, device that first was used to detect CFCs in the atmosphere 
I mean, right there, that was a huge positive change. We, he created this instrument that could detect CFCs in the atmosphere down to parts per trillion. They detected them in the atmosphere. They correlated that to ozone depletion, and we were able to make real policy changes that reduce those impacts, and now the ozone is actually in repair, and there's these... So I think he's a big systems thinker that has thought about this stuff really deeply, and climate change is a very complicated issue, and he's kind of backed off on some of his more alarmist views that were cited by the IPCC and the Al Gore and the Inconvenient Truth, and he's now stating that because of the amount of particulate uh, contamination in the atmosphere due to industrialization, temperatures are not rising as fast as would be predicted by the increase in CO2 levels. So life is a strange thing. Um, I, I mean, they, temperatures have definitely, the mean temperatures have definitely not been increasing as much as Al Gore and the IPCC was predicting in 2006 and seven it's still an issue for sure and we still should be doing everything we can to prevent climate change and prevent any types of methane releases and CO2 and uh, excess water vapor and all of that but it, it's just fascinating how first we dealt with CFCs in the atmosphere which is really a very simple problem you know they were able to make this simple correlation and they were able to make policy changes and it's it's helped but climate change and how we get our energy through nuclear power versus fossil fuels versus solar, you know, these are complicated. And personally, I feel like the more and more we can focus on renewable and safe energy acquisition and also reduction of demand and appropriate technology and appropriate scale is definitely essential. But like with the impact of Fukushima and the BP oil spill, that's just industry run amok. And that's where people should be fucking outraged because that is a complete and utter failure to actually have effective regulatory apparatuses, apparatus out there. Like, I mean... Yeah. I think it's it's so important to see and to to see that connection and even what I love about the Gaia theory is just the emphasis of the interconnected organs of one being of this body that we live on yeah. and how you know certain things that that it's insanely complicated and it's it is so true that those original models and ideas of what was just global warming is it's becoming more and more difficult to see and that, yeah, those predictions are not coming true necessarily. And even like how with more volcanic eruptions that have been going on, putting more particulates in the air actually exactly infects, which they also produce methane. And so it's, again, not one-sided. Also, right. more and more research looking at um, how greatly we're impacted our planet and the planets of our solar system are impacted by the sun and how so much of the solar radiation and changing and it's I mean we've been going into a solar minimum 
and looking at possibilities of that uh, cooling temperatures can also be affected by that type of radiation, maybe even particles and energy that is like out of our solar system as well, different energy clouds that our solar system moves through because our solar system is moving through the galaxy and potentially depending on who you talk to, even a binary star system with another one. But it's Whoa. I know, right? It's, it's <laughs> so interesting to like cool. it's I believe Sirius B is anyway. Like I, I don't yeah. know, enough, but it's I, that Walter Cruttenden guy. He, he yeah, like, yeah. He, like he, and he, the whole. I mean, another piece too is as far as our emerging science and ideas is like the electric universe. I don't know if you've looked into those guys at all, but some really solid research and looking at the model of, I mean, really the cosmos and how uh, electrical potentials between planets could cause, like, I mean, I guess the main current thing with it is connected to the hydrologic cycle is comets. And so the whole theory was an idea is that, oh, water came here via comets. And the more research, because there's a lot of actual probes going out to comets that have been passing by, is the more that we see, the more that they're not made of ice, like they're made of rock, and that these views of these are, are it's not supported. And so they've actually found, and via their plasma studies and looking at, at water and water plasma, essentially a fourth phase of water, to see that we can actually create water via electrical fields and hydrogen in, in the atmosphere. And so the idea is during right now that there's less of this charge between planets, and especially when planets move closer to each other. And they even reference like the great conjunction of other planets were actually in alignment, you know, circumnavigating the sun in, in alignment in straight ways. And they tie in like even the mythologies that and they, I mean, their their picture of it's really interesting, and it's not just arm waving. There is some really solid experimental evidence to look at at some of these, you know, very alternative. But also, there are specific people that were, uh, especially back in the day, that it didn't fit the model. And when it doesn't fit the model, it's thrown out. And so there's a lot of these certain inertia with worldviews and with scientific um, larger pictures that can be an issue and you know the the processes of scientific revolutions is really interesting because there's always like the crazy dude who's like Pernicus like no like that's not how it works you know we we are the center of the universe and the sun and everything else surrounds around us and they're exercised and there's you know so I think it's important to one maintain a critical eye to look at these new and um, competing views that have such wide-reaching impacts, but also to really have an open mind to see them, and that everything should be working hypothesis, and it's difficult because there's so many people that have yeah. careers built upon all ideas of physics and gravity, which are, it's possible that there are other views that overlap in what they, what they support, and that other ideas can be also supported by um, research that's happened now, but from a different way. It's so important to keep an open mind with, with so many of these really evolving and potentially really hopeful ideas and views of how we can have more knowledge about the way these, these systems work together in their insanely complex and beautiful ways.
Totes. <laughs> I think this is the first Evolver Network podcast that really got cosmic. Thanks, guys. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, well, I've been kind of like I've been kind of taking it easy to figure um, out the right reframe of the whole thing. But I think I went too far the other direction for a while. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, we've kind of uh, brought a. Uh, had the whole spectrum, I think, on this one too. <laughs> well, you, did you want me to call on my Arcturian buddies? They they're really good at vortexing water. <laughs> <laughs> that that'll be for the next call. I think okay. we should, uh, we can we can dive more into the weird. Right. I have some water vortexes in the kitchen. I could bust out. Do you think you could describe yeah. in words like there's that one where you can thread together two glass bottles? Well, basically, it goes back to the ideology that as basic as it can be, when water is coming up from the earth and it's mature and it's aged and it's ready to come up to the earth out of the bosom of the mountain and it comes out, it has a certain temperature, it has a certain electro-conductance, and generally you test it for total dissolved solids to see if it's like, highly contaminated with a bunch of dissolved minerals or not. And so generally you want to drink below 75 TDS. And there's only, I think, like 10 springs on the entire planet which are below 20. That water's amazing. I think the lowest TDS spring water I've drinking is 18. But basically when it comes up out of the earth, it is perfect. And that's the water that we always want to strive to, to put in our bodies because it fits between the DNA like no other and hydrates our cells on a function that most water doesn't hydrate us on because of its structure and its mineral content and its purity. And so, like, if you can't get that, you want to try to make that as close as you can with what you have. And so spinning water and going through something I didn't mention, which is uh, Dan Winter's imploder yeah, nozzle. imploder, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> which I've been, yeah. trying to, been trying to make at home here. So cool. <laughs> but basically, if you spin water through a vortex, through a compressed vortex or whatever, that is spun water. It's spinning it through a vortex, just like putting it in a copper bucket or metal pot with a wooden spoon and spinning it ten times to the right or ten times to the left or whatever. Um, it has that spiral memory. Same thing with electricity. Electricity actually wants to spiral in its movement, and so they've learned to, to work with that idea too and actually vortex electrical currents through different like rodent coils or whatever and actually create more ampacity or whatever. So it's a general flow, just like the wind currents. And so when water doesn't have that movement into it, it sort of dis dysfunctions its... Uh, Hydroxine, hydroxine or um, hydrogen bonds, so to speak. And so even just by doing that is one thing. And so an imploder nozzle definitely is an interesting topic, just like biodynamic farming, where if you water your garden with that, at least your water is spun, and it has that memory of being spun. And so an imploder is where we set up like rare earth magnets or any type of magnetic field and where the vortex point goes through, where that water is spinning and then coming back out from its vortex point, there's a magnetic field created and through the magnetic field as it's vortexing it actually implodes and clicks into 
a more structured microcrystalline configuration. And so it's just basically retelling the, the water, which is electric, through a magnetic field, which is electric, basically how to re-imprint it with a better uh, structure to it. And so we have different imploder bottles that we use to spin through. We also have like three gallon to three gallon. There's ways to make a five gallon bottle spin into a five gallon bottle. So if you're not getting the best spring water ever, then perhaps you would add some sea salt, some magnesium, some different minerals into the water after you purified a lot of the toxins out of it the best you could with whatever filtration system you have. Berkey filters. That's what we have, one of them. And so it's just this process of cleaning your water remineralizing it and then re-imprinting it and then that's going to be the closest you can get unless you're going up you know an hour and a half to the mountain to find a spring source that's tested and not not illegal to gather from. Sometimes you get weird looks when you gather it though. <laughs> right. We just tell them we're brewing kombucha with it so. There you go. <laughs> we had people skiing past us the other day when we went up to get it from the spring and they're looking at us with a sled and a five gallon, three three gallons and jugs and. Up in the uh, Santa Fe mountains? Yeah, at the ski hill there's a, there's a spring that comes oh, out. Yeah, I was just up there like a month ago. Nice. I spent three years in New Mexico trying to track down a spring that I could go gather water from to have living water from because most water here has been uh, taken by the County Water Commission for whenever there's water runoff it has to be captured for legal purposes and so for acequias and things like that so it's it's amazing how rare springs are but in some places like Upper California, Oregon Colorado and a lot out in the East Coast springs you just go by the side of the road and you can fill up if you have the certain sources but here in the desert southwest it's a rare rare precious commodity that is true. It totally blows my mind when I think about spring water. It's like, what? This stuff filters down or has been trapped in these pockets and then somehow something forces it up so it actually comes out of the ground and like yeah. our bodies are constantly, it's not only drinking water and expelling it, but like all our cells and how they let in water and like all the whole, it's the when I just really think about what's really going on and how many processes are involved and how plants drink up water from the soil and from the air, it just, I can't not think of it as completely magical because it's just so complex and subtle and beautiful and alive and flowing. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That can be thousands of years old under the ground and then pops up and you're drinking water that's met all sorts of different things like through the different sediment sections and hitting that clay layer and like ran along the clay layer for a while and then dropped down a fault further down. It's just, you know, I always talk about if rocks could talk because of how much I like rocks and being a geologist and all that. But it's really true, like there's such a, such a story and a path that I would like to think that I try and connect to, but sometimes it's difficult to hear the story. <laughs> Anders, at some point I'd like to tell you about, I met a shaman who worked with and has rocks from someone in Peru, like a Shipibo person, who specifically works with rocks and embedding memory and prayers into rocks and giving them to people to work with in their work, so wanted to <laughs> talk with you about that at some point. Yes. Um, it's something I think a lot about too, like I'm also really 
I live in Montana and there's lots of agates and I always go out mm -hmm. and walk and just because they always catch my eye because they're glint the sun is glinting off of them and so I'm always I would like to learn more about geology and what makes certain rocks look a certain way what minerals are in them what are these epic long-term processes that that rock goes through to form in a certain way in a different place and that's all and endless earth is endlessly fascinating <laughs> I'd like to close our epic conversation with one more question because it's so fun to talk to you all. <laughs> Getting back to the theme for Evolver Network, which is about the ocean and our planetary psyche. I'm wondering what the phrase planetary psyche means to you and how that might be connected symbolically to water. The ocean of mind. Our planetary psyche, um, I think of Jungian when I think of psyche, but yeah, definitely conscious, unconscious, and what, what is brought to light or what is awakened within us versus kind of what is more hidden or unconscious or more subverted through a process. And so with the ocean being what it is and this theme, which is the whole body of water on our planet and a giant filtration process, which is has its own issues outside of groundwater that are really important to understand, especially the ecology that lives in our oceans and the delicate balance which that's going through. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, just the, the ocean of mind and, and how related those two are in terms of the, the theme for this, this quarter. I guess I'll piggyback on that. And what I was thinking was the connection to the, the, the concept of the noosphere with uh, Chardon's work and a lot of people have kind of, I think, come up with it also after him but even separate from, but it's just the idea of our kind of global um, mind and how our process of, mm. of awakening is, is this kind of becoming more clearly contacted by that knowing of connection and even like Rupert Sheldrake's work with looking at morph morphogenetic fields and evidence for that information and stuff is shared non-physically, non-via matter, but, but potentially via fields. And so I, I guess I would kind of connect the idea of and would hope that our continued awakening towards the importance of water and the interconnectedness of it on our global and mm. interplanetary scale even, but especially the global scale, is us awakening to that global mind kind of in a, in a synchronous way. I would kind of hope that we, that one, it's empowering and fun to explore connections with people and with these topics that are very physical in our, in our health and our environment, but the empowerment to really feel that connected in the, in the health and vitality that we can gain, not only, you know, the information and doing things that are better practices, but how can we feel that connectedness and through the empowerment of making a difference on our local scale, the rippling out, which is funny because we're talking about water, but the rippling out of that impact on our on our global consciousness, which is us making impacts on our smaller water systems, to really look at how we can impact the larger one as a whole. Yeah, and like you were saying earlier, Andrew, about the question as to whether or not 
water was endogenous or originated on the planet endogenously or, you know, came from an asteroid. The origin of life, water is essential to it. I mean, Casey was implying that too, that water is not just a, a substrate for living organisms, but it really is life. It is life bearer. And it's so fascinating that we're coming up against these issues, we're, we're studying Mars, we're, we're learning that Mars likely very clearly had a lot of water now, and it's just a huge wake-up call, not just on a sustainability level, but on an, an engaging spiritual level for the whole planetary psyche to look at that planet and just be like, wow, you know, we could lose this we could lose our life we could we could we could i mean it's it seems unlikely in some ways that we could do that but at the same time it is kind of that call to that level of engagement with the life bearing force that is so well i mean it's not the father son and holy spirit but it's some other kind of trinity some kind of triple goddess thing <laughs> or something but yeah. But uh, so Casey just he he wrote this down and I'll say it for him but okay. he he made the connection that you know we're we've moved into the age of Aquarius which is actually the water bearer. Right. <laughs> so it's interesting that we bring up this subject in this time of awakening towards this consciousness water as symbolic of consciousness global. and this global um, connectedness that we need to have really for our conscious evolution to be able to make to actually you know maintain our life here in, in a way Absolutely. that that is is a way I mean I think I mean we've gone through last ice ages and there have been huge die-offs of our species and obviously larger ones before that of other ones but we have been in the ebb and flow of concentrations of our species here on Earth for sure. And our history and, and deeper knowledge of that, I think, is only in the fields, as it were, um, and less in our physical stuff. I think Graham Hancock really has some incredible research and evidence to look at those ancient civilizations, at least the very small fragments that we have to, to view. But yeah, it was just, it was funny that it is, it's so important piece of, of where we're going and, and its power to, um, to move us and empower us through it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks for having this call, Magenta. Yeah, yeah you good job, Magenta. <laughs> good job, you guys. This has yeah, been this the most fun conversation I've had in a while. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah thank you so much for facilitating in a beautiful way and uh and getting people together it's it's important super gratitude to all of you from all the currents of flow in the evolver network with all the, the beautiful people with their minds and hearts and connection to nature and the cosmos and really grateful for this integrative and informative science conversation as well and Wishing you love and growth on your paths and looking forward to the next time that we meet in physical space or cyber world. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, awesome. Definitely. Thank you.
Cool. I want to come visit yeah. you guys too next time in Santa Fe. I'll be there this summer. Take care with one. you. <laughs> our, our other water wizard has arrived. Awesome. No way. I haven't seen you in so long. Yeah, in years. How you doing? Hi. I'm doing really well. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. Yeah, for the for our, our spore theme here, we're gonna do a good discussion panel, and we're gonna have there's a um, a local company I'm forgetting their name that does uh, program water, and, and Kaylee and Casey and a Spring few other people water. just like really you know kind of get into it and what we can do locally and and stuff. But but yeah, our community is here. <laughs> Straight from the mouth. But yeah, and Jacob, let me know when you're in town because I I will. I love to um, to connect and even out of town like um, I'd like to to share and to to learn more about the other stuff that you're into as well because I you know I've heard little pieces but I, I resonate oh yeah this was great this was great cross-pollination right, good stuff sure. I'd like to learn more about the nitrates yeah no that was awesome guys we had a wizard meeting. <laughs> and magenta, I think women have a natural, more tuned-in inclination towards water in general, for sure. Uh, based upon like the own cyclical cycle with the moon and the moon governing water systems on this earth, and also women just being more generally in tune with more sensitive issues like water and ecology. I would say there's a, a deeper connection there in the feminine aspect of that. Personally, yeah. that's. I think what I'm going to do is have, see if I can get Meg Rivers from Columbia, Missouri, who has been researching a bunch of ocean stuff for a long time, and uh, Robin Gunkel from Baltimore, um, and see if I can get Alicia, too. She worked for the Australian Water Association for a while and does permaculture stuff with Evolver Sydney, but I think it'd be good to have a, like, Evolver Sporganizer women's panel on the same, same topic and see what emerges from that. Yeah, definitely. Sporganically. What was that? <laughs> oh, I said sporganically. Sporganically? <laughs> <laughs> I need to get the spore going around here, Magenta. You need to help me. <laughs> okay. The last one didn't work out too well. Yeah, we should just like hang out, like you, me, and Bruce, and invite yeah. our friends, and like I don't know, do some kind of interesting. <laughs> Panel discussion somewhere or like a ritual. A ritual would be good. Yeah, and ritual sounds good. That's how yeah. we did the last ones. Yeah, and that helps get a like a group field emergent space going instead of a weird power dynamic of some people who know information, and some don't. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've I wanna I wanna speak to you specifically about that too. Is like in the idea of how do we how do we share information in what can be a discussion panel and with questions and stuff, but how do we, because I feel this lack of where there is the more experiential piece to make sure people are, are engaging, and it isn't just like the, obviously not just talking at or talking at with questions, but I feel like there's a net, another step with how how is there, I mean, one, like circular, you know, and not like table people and the rest of the people yeah. lower down. Because there is a better way, and I feel like I've, I have pieces, but it's, I think it's so important to have that as a part of the way we're presenting the material and yeah. to allowing space for people to share and that it's valued for them to share in whatever 
comes. Like, so. Sometimes what I've been doing is having, so like when I've done hive minds before I've had the panel part go for 20 minutes and then have community discussion for 30 minutes. Like breakout group type style or? They've been small enough that we almost haven't needed breakout, but that's that would be the other way to do it is to break off into pods of people. So you can do World Cafe, which is where you have a few questions for people to answer. Um, and then there's like a harvest afterward where each group shares back highlights. It's not my favorite way of doing it because the thing at the end, it's always hard for people to summarize the depth of conversation that they had. Often I think when we've done, when there's like 30 minutes of community discussion, there's a way of like encouraging people to not just ask questions, but share their wisdom on it too. Because a lot of what does happen in an Evolver Spore is like people who come tend to be often as informed on the topic as the speaker. And the people who come have such rich wisdom from whatever worlds they're walking in that I find that really common to any Spore event I've been to. So having like a little bit of some kind of programmed thing to help get people's gears turning and get the topics like on the table and then really encouraging people to not just like ask questions of a specific person, but share what they've been thinking about and wondering and share with the community the resources they have around the topic as well. So it's more of a a generative sharing conversation. I've also been looking at how to do think tanks on specific issues we did one, the last hive mind, we had think tank breakout sessions in three different topics. We didn't get very far. Like, I don't think we allowed enough time for it. But the point of those was to be almost like strategy and solutions focused, like what's going on in our community around this thing and what are some tools that we know of or could bring to the table that could actually address something that's still out of balance and that's more action oriented. But mm-hmm. I, ha- I haven't developed that as much as it could be yet, I think. Yeah, I like that. I think a think tank would work best if you get in a big tank of water. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a hot springs? I don't know. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, man. You, um, Deep Creek Hot Springs, which I, w- I just did, actually did a road trip out to California. I was in Southern California. Joshua Tree, which is like a good, I mean, I've spent so much time there because I went to college mm-hmm. in Claremont. Oh, cool. McKenna and Pomona is where I studied. But I'd never been to Deep Creek Hot Springs, which is if you go on I-15, like out of San Bernardino County, you cross the San Gabriel Mountains, and then you you essentially pass the mountains, you turn right and kind of hook back and right to the um, to this private property and you hike in. But I it's my my favorite hot springs. And I've I mean San Antonio. Oh, hot it's springs. not that far from Lake Arrowhead. Yeah, it's not that far. It's not that far, and it's incredible. And you, it, the traffic has increased over the years, as always. And there's more trash, and even like running into people who are like so wasted. And this girl was having such a t- temper tantrum. It was pretty funny as we were hiking down. Yeah, but there's but, always weirdos at hot springs. Yeah, and, totally. And there's beautiful weirdos, and there's yeah. you know there's all sorts of the I've last before, yeah. It's, I'd highly recommend that hot spring. That sounds cool. Yeah, that's a nice area. I go down there quite a bit too. Yeah. So and we we're we we're up in the Mojave on that trip too, which is just I yeah. Mm-hmm. I love granite of climbing and scrambling around on so mm-hmm. Well I think I better better hop off and eat some dinner. 
Me too. Word. But wow. That thank was... you guys. This was so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and thanks for that. There is I mean, obviously we get into the kind of heavier stuff because as far as like at least for my practice and work and stuff, it's it's tough to like to contextualize it and, f and frame it in a way that's more accessible because I could even feel, I hear other people hearing what I'm saying and it's tough. I don't know, I think it's a, always a dialogue with meeting it halfway with the scientific information and also how do we, how do we make it hearable from, from everybody. And it's, I, I mean, you, you did a great job of kind of grounding it, Magenta, and like, I really appreciated that piece of your yeah. your facilitating side of it for sure. Totally, yeah. It's because it's a topic that's in people's minds now, but if people get overwhelmed by the complexity of it, then they start to shut it off, and it just becomes too much in the context of everything else that's going on in the world. And in reality, it's coming into consciousness. You know, people are researching this stuff more. And we're just here participating in that. Thank you so much to Andrew, Jacob, and Casey for joining us and sharing their wisdom and experience. I hope you enjoyed this tour of water science. This podcast is part of Evolver Network's global campaign to educate about watersheds and our symbolic relationship with water. Please visit our website to learn more at evolvernetwork.org. You can find out if there is a local Evolver chapter in your city where you can learn hands-on skills to conserve water and restore natural waterways. You can also join the conversation online via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using the hashtag OceanDreams. One simple thing you can do to form a closer relationship with water is to come up with a ritual related to it, perhaps by doing a meditation with the first water that you drink in the morning or taking a walk to a body of water near where you live. By forming a more intimate relationship with water, we can find our way back to right relation with the planet's rich, interconnected ecosystems. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us for another episode of the Evolver Network podcast.